This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll check in on the early childhood sector and get the latest on a coalition that's forming to help educators earn their degrees. Plus, we hear about the post-pandemic comeback of a silent film festival. The idea of doing movies with live music in the theater, it really adds a specialness. It, it makes it an event. And we'll visit the Shambhala Mountain Center, one of many places trying to shore up defenses against future wildfires. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Some big plans for early childhood education in Colorado are in motion ahead of the 2023 school year. That's when the state is planning to make a minimum of 10 hours a week of preschool available to all kids in Colorado. That's projected to be close to 66,000 children in 2023. According to a state report, about 24,000 children accessed state-funded preschool in the 2019-2020 school year. With the dramatic increase in the number of eligible children, the state is projecting a significant jump in participation. And that means a lot will have to change between now and then as state officials and early childhood educators prepare for the influx of new students and their families. And it's in this pivotal time frame that the University of Colorado Denver is spearheading an effort to examine early childhood teacher preparation and how to make Colorado's degree programs more accessible to early childhood teachers. Anne Shimke is a senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, and she's been covering this reform effort as well as the other moving parts in the lead up to the big pre-K expansion. Anne, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with CU Denver and this effort of theirs. They are forming a coalition of leaders from community colleges and universities and state agencies. Tell us about this project, this coalition, and the overall scope of what they're looking at. They received a $2.3 million grant from a coalition of national funders who are very interested in early childhood education. Basically, the grant is going to allow them to do a variety of things to make it easier for early childhood professionals to earn bachelor's degrees. Research kind of indicates, as one um, University of Colorado leader told me, she said it research really does indicate that having a bachelor's degree, especially if it's in early childhood education, does improve early education quality for children. There is definitely still some arguments about this, but she said that's where research is leaning. And so they really want to push more early childhood staff members to get those bachelor's degrees. Right now, there's a lot of different ways to become an early childhood teacher, and they don't many of them don't require getting a degree. You certainly can get an associate's degree or bachelor's degree, but a lot of people come into it with a more entry-level training. It's um, commonly called a CDA. It's a non-college degree. You can get in through other ways, taking different trainings every few years. The problem is they often don't match together and they don't earn you credit toward a college degree. So you can, the way the University of Colorado Denver leader described it to me is a hamster wheel where these early childhood staff members maybe take a professional development or some kind of training every few years It just allows them to stay in the field, but it doesn't allow them to get a degree. It doesn't allow them to get the raises that come with bachelor's degrees. 
And so it sounds like a much more sustainable path for early educators, which I have to imagine is uh, top of mind for many people as we're coming out of the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of where the early childhood sector is at and how it's been impacted by the pandemic? It's been really rough for a lot of providers. There's definitely been some childcare providers in Colorado that have closed, not as many as some experts initially feared. But even beyond the fact that some stayed open, they're still having a lot of financial problems. Enrollment has not rebounded for everybody. So some are still offering the same level of service, but have fewer kids in slots, which means less money. There's a lot of kind of financial struggle that I think we're going to be seeing over the next year to two. And that's even with um, federal stimulus aid coming in. As we talk about all this, Colorado is actually getting a new early childhood agency. This was something that came out of this year's legislative session, sort of tied to the uh, pre-K expansion. What can you tell us about the creation of this agency and what their mandate is as it relates to some of the other things we've talked about? So that new agency is going to launch next year sometime. Um, And basically the idea is to put many of the programs that affect young children um, and their families into one place. So right now those programs are spread among the Department of Education, the Department of uh, Human Services, the Department of Public Health and Environment, an open question remains is exactly which programs are going to be in this new agency. I think it's pretty likely that the new universal preschool program is going to end up in that new early childhood agency, though final decisions have not been made. One of the goals of this agency is to streamline the experience for families of young children so that they do not have to maybe go to three agencies or sign up for five different programs with five different sets of requirements. Again, final details remain to be seen about how much streamlining can do for their experience or, or, you know, if it can make their experience easier. But that's one of the goals. With the state's preschool program, they are anticipating a huge bump in participation. It's a few years off yet, but what are you hearing from early childhood teachers and experts and advocates about universal pre-K and the expansion? I think there's a lot of excitement about offering universal free preschool for four-year-olds. I think a lot of people see it as kind of one step toward having a true like birth to college type continuum of education. But I think there's also a lot of trepidation because right now there's really not enough preschool teachers to provide that much preschool. Um, I think that's where some of the efforts like what CU Denver is doing come into play. Um, And I think there's also a lot of question about where is this preschool going to be offered? There's a lot of private preschool providers that do not operate within public schools. And I think they absolutely want to be part of the universal preschool program. And that would require, and I think Colorado is heading toward what they call a mixed delivery model, where you can get preschool in your local elementary school, but you can also get it at the private provider down the street in your neighborhood. Ann Shimke is a senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. As always, you can find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. And thanks for speaking with us. Anytime. Thank you. 
Last summer, during the pandemic, Chautauqua Auditorium's silent film series largely went, well, silent. For the first time since it began in 1984, a virtual event was held in place of live screenings. But it wasn't the same. No audience laughing together at the pratfalls of Buster Keaton. No gasps at the dramatic love scenes with Louise Brooks or Rudolph Valentino. And no orchestra in the pit providing the soundtrack for it all. Now, the live event and live music are returning with a little something extra. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick has more. Since the early 1990s, the five-member Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra has been setting the musical scene for silent films in Colorado and across the country. I came across a large collection of silent film music at the University of Colorado that had just been donated there. Rodney Sauer is the founder of the Louisville-based orchestra. And started looking through it and realized that there was this whole repertoire of music that had been used in silent film orchestras, and it had pretty much been ignored since 1929. Ignored, much like silent films themselves, the genre was quickly shelved with the advent of talkies, but among film aficionados, they're still lauded today at various film festivals. Sauer was originally a biochemist with a side passion for music, but once he found the untapped niche of performing and recording music for silent films, there was no going back. And also, I really became to appreciate silent film. It's, it was quite a mature art form by the time um, of the end of the 1920s. And the idea of doing movies with live music in the theater, it really adds a specialness. It, it makes it an event. This month, the orchestra is performing at a special screening of All Quiet on the Western Front as part of the Chautauqua silent film series. The film was made in 1930, a time when talkies were already big in the United States, but hadn't broken through in other countries yet. To compensate, the studio produced two versions, one silent and one with sound. But screenings of the silent version only recently began in the U.S. after a copy was found and restored by the Library of Congress. For the Mont Alto Orchestra, the movie created an opportunity to dip into another bag of tricks. In spite of its title, All Quiet on the Western Front, it is not quiet until the very end. That's Nancy Sauer, Rodney's wife and his partner in what they jokingly call the family business. She and the couple's daughter often help with another element of the silent film era, sound effects. There's a bass drum for large explosions a wooden peg system for marching, dried beans and rice dropping on a metal paint tray for crumbling debris, and an electric typewriter to mimic the sound of gunfire. So let's see if it is warmed up enough. It was not behaving well last night, but there's a lot of machine guns that we see. And so when you get a repeating key going, it does a great job of and you've got to be careful to get it back over so you don't get a ding in the middle of a tent scene. In preparation, Nancy spends hours watching and re-watching clips from the film to make sure she hits her cues at just the right time. The human brain will forgive the sound being just slightly behind, right? Because of course we're used to the sound arrives after the visual, uh, but you have to be prepared for it. And, and so if you just like fractions of seconds behind, that's okay, can never be early. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, that was wrong, wasn't it? Our brains are not okay with hearing the sound before the visual. 
And if the orchestra and crew do their job well, Rodney Sauer says the audience won't really notice them. Our job is to not draw attention to ourselves during the film. We want people to be focused on that and feeling the emotion. And what we're doing is we are using the music that we've chosen for each scene to underscore and strengthen the scene, uh, to make it more emotional, to make it, uh, sometimes it's to make it funny, sometimes it's to make an ironic comment, but most of the time we're taking the film at face value. So we're at eight. Recently, the entire orchestra got together for the first time in more than a year to rehearse in front of a TV screen playing the film over and over. It's definitely a different way of performing, says David Short. The freelance cellist joined the orchestra 14 years ago. It's a very different experience than the concert where the, it feels like there's a wall kind of at the end of the stage. And here, where we're sitting really close to the audience because we're watching the film too, and there's a kind of a bigger connection from the musicians to the audience, I think. But then the other thing is that the reactions of the audience, they're very visceral because they're in the moment. <laughs> So is the orchestra. It's another quality that Rodney Sauer says makes playing for silent films different than anything else. You've got a performance that's going on, it's a live performance, it will never be the same exactly twice, and so you're experiencing that as, a, as this sort of revival of a lost um, but quite beautiful sometimes art form. One that, if he has his way, will never go silent again. Stacy Nick, KUNC, Louisville. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Next month marks one year since the Cameron Peak fire first ignited. It burned for nearly four months northwest of Fort Collins, and at more than 208,000 acres burned, it's the state's largest ever wildfire. We've been revisiting some of the worst hit sites from that fire, and today we are at Chambala Mountain Center near Redfeather Lakes. KUNC's Matt Bloom met staff there who shared how a forest restoration project saved a lot of their campus from destruction. We have some burned buildings here, a lot of metal and ash and wood, and the structures have just been, you know, completely burned down. There's a few art pieces. There's a Buddha head. The amount of damage at Shambhala is staggering. The Buddhist retreat center lost more than 150 visitor tents, several cabins, and an art studio that was home to more than 1,000 handmade pieces. You can still see charred Buddha sculptures in a grassy meadow where the fire raged through. It came from the west, from that direction, and flowed over like water down that valley. Michael Gaynor is the center's director. What's just as shocking as the damage, he says, is what didn't burn. The scar stops in the middle of the meadow. Farther down, the cafeteria, main office building, meditation tents, they're all still standing. If we hadn't done the work, those buildings would be gone. That land would be baked and barren. Um, and there's no question about that. That simply is the case. The work he's referring to is a new kind of technique being used in areas where wildfires have been suppressed for decades. It's known as forest restoration. In 2018, Gaynor worked with local forest managers to clear a 120-acre overgrown patch of trees near some of their biggest buildings. They pulled trees out, huge machines going over. The place just looked all chewed up. The technique mimics what a natural wildfire would do, but with humans and large saws instead of heat. 
The finished product looks more like an open space with a few trees and shrubs. So now, three years later, it's just a much healthier forest with a lot more biodiversity and you can't tell the work was done. It's also a perfect buffer for firefighters. When they raced to protect communities from the Cameron Peak Fire, they chose the restored spot in Shambhala as a base camp. From there, they were able to attack the front of the fire and stop it in its tracks. It works so well that Shambhala is having more thinning work done this summer. On the south side of its campus, crews are busy removing hundreds of trees one by one and stacking them in large piles to later be sold as firewood. So this is called a hot saw. Gretchen Rooning is a program director with the Fort Collins Conservation District, a government-run forest management program overseeing the work. She wants to get more landowners in northern Colorado on board and build what she calls a ribbon of restored forest. So this kind of ties in to that patchwork um, because the goal of this stuff is to get to that landscape scale so that we can really address the full resource concern. Because um, if you do this scattershot treatment you know, throughout the county and you don't have any connectivity of this treatment, then it's a lot harder to protect communities. The work is tedious and expensive, about $2,500 an acre. Government funding is helping, but there's still a lot of obstacles, and peak fire season is also already underway. I don't think there's enough speed in the world to get this stuff done. Um, we need a lot more resources, not just money, but contractors. Um, we need jobs, we need people out here doing these jobs, and, uh, and then the willingness of the different land management agencies and private landowners to work together. So typically on a summer day, come up here, there's going to be anywhere from 1 to 15, 20 people in there meditating. For Shambhala's director, Michael Gaynor, the decision to work with the Fort Collins Conservation District again was a no-brainer. Along with important buildings, the center's iconic gold crown stupa is still standing. You just look at it, it's highly defensible, right? There's a massive strip of gravel around it, this concrete platform. It's made of concrete. There's nothing much that's burnable. He's looking forward to welcoming visitors back soon, and he'll feel safer having the forest restoration work done. We know the wildfires, they're going to be coming fast and furious this summer in most of the west of this country. So the reason I'm saying get to the healthy forest first is because you want to have something to work with. You know, there's a very high chance that any, any property outside of some of these very small spots that have gotten sufficient rain are going to burn. And uh, so, you know, that's this urgency there. The saws and crew members will be finished working by the end of July. And after that, Gaynor says he's looking forward to enjoying some long overdue peace and quiet. Matt Bloom, KUNC. Now we're going to shift from wildfire defense to protecting land from development with a My Colorado essay submission about an area between Denver and Colorado Springs called Greenland Ranch. I'm Sydney Macy, and this is my Colorado essay about saving Greenland Ranch. I grew up on the outskirts of Denver, on the edge of my grandparents' farm. My childhood home was just south of the city limits surrounded by fields of alfalfa and dusty dirt roads lined with cottonwoods. My siblings and I have the run of the place. 
We would take off for the day to explore a property, ride bareback on horses across the endless expanse, and float in rubber tubes down the Highline Canal as it meandered on its way to water the plains. One of the best days of the year was when we got to play hooky and ride the Denver Zephyr to Colorado Springs. We would board at the Littleton Station and make a mad dash to claim the coveted seats in the Vista Dome, an elevated car with no ceiling, just a giant bubble of glass. As the streamlined train pulled out, we were mesmerized by the lands that we witnessed through that clear dome. Chugging south into Douglas County, we traveled through Castle Rock and entered a magical landscape of emerald grasslands punctuated by prehistoric buttes and mesas. The train roared through the Greenland Ranch, labored up and over the Palmer Divide, and descended to the springs. It was the early 1960s. Interstate 25 had not yet been constructed, and the population of Douglas County was only 5,000. Ten years later, returning home from college for Christmas, I was glued to the window of an airplane, smiling and brimming with excitement. The day was classic Colorado, brilliant blue skies and glistening snow-drenched peaks. As we began our descent over the mountains, we dropped into a thick soup of brown smog choking Denver. Everything I knew had been swallowed by that dirty air. Tears were streaming down my cheeks. And I knew in that moment that my life's work would be devoted to protecting my beloved home. I was lucky and landed a dream job with the Nature Conservancy right out of college. For 40 years, I helped protect special lands across Colorado and the West. But the landscape I witnessed from the Zephyr had captured me, and I never gave up my dream of protecting that magnificent place, making sure it wasn't filled with cul-de-sacs and shopping malls and office towers. By 1995, Douglas County's population had grown to 100,000, and today it is over 350,000, one of the fastest growing counties in America for over two decades. Over 85% of Colorado's population now lives on Colorado's Front Range in an area defined by the I-25 highway. After Colorado voters directed that lottery funds be earmarked for land conservation in 1992, I was able to focus on preserving the Greenland Ranch and the properties around it. By the year 2000, over 30,000 acres surrounding 12 miles of the interstate had been bought and protected, and thousands of acres have since been added. Denver and Colorado Springs will never grow together. But our work is not done. 80,000 cars drive this stretch of I-25 every day. The traffic is usually stopped. The cars sit and idle. Most people don't notice the preserved lands. They are on their phones, checking emails, sending texts, and not paying attention. And the trains that travel the tracks of my childhood now begin in Wyoming's Powder River Basin, where 110 open train cars are identically loaded with coal resembling a string of perfect black-mounted graves. The mile-long train is headed to coal-fired power plants to cool homes in the Southwest. Our 21st century technology needs to match this exquisite landscape. We need clean, high-speed passenger trains to replace the coal cars, avoiding the gridlocked interstate and transporting our citizens rapidly to their destinations. The train might stop at Greenland 
unchanged since my days on the Zephyr. The passengers could walk to the trailhead, hike through the deep green grass, and then continue their journey to the springs. That was Sydney Macy reading her essay on a changing Colorado. You can find more at KUNC.org slash MyColorado. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, our state reached its goal for 70% of residents receiving at least one COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. We hear what that means for vaccination efforts going forward. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.